0: The ending of this experiment, going through the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 4, 5, and 6. The title of the message is, God's Answer to Occupational Hazards. God's Answer to Occupational Hazards. And before we get anywhere, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability in this country to come freely and worship Jesus to open the scriptures, and to learn from you. I pray that our hearts will receive spiritual food. I pray that our souls will be nourished and energized. And I pray we will see Jesus. Him and him only. In his mighty name we pray, and everybody said, amen. God bless you. God bless you. So the theme of this book, Ecclesiastes, which is the third book that Solomon writes in his life. He writes Song of Solomon about romance and love. He writes Proverbs about wisdom and wise living. And then at the end of his life, he looks back on life and he says, well, what's it all for? And he basically says, take it from me, life without God is empty. That's basically what Ecclesiastes is, and he explores all the ways in which we think it's not empty because we will try to find fullness in all kinds of things other than God, and we will give our lives to these things and still come up empty. And Solomon says, hey, I've been there. I've done that. I've lived the life you imagine. I was the richest, most successful, most beloved human on earth, and I know this for a fact. You can have it all, and without God, it's all for naught. Life without God is empty. Now, Solomon, again, has lived the gamut of human experience. And I want to just illustrate this. Because some of you need to see this illustrated physically. I want you to say hello to my little friend. Ooh, I just spilled some. If I could get a towel from the stagehand, who is also my son. (laughs) If I could get a towel. He'll come shortly. Um, This is you. Somebody say, hello, me here's the deal with our lives. Um, We will spend an an inordinate amount of time in our lives on basically three things. And Solomon highlights these three things in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, we will also spend our time on these things in successive order from our youth to our old age. And when we are young... What happens is life is all about pleasure. Purple straw for pleasure. And we will be like, I just want to have fun. I want to have friends. I want to party. I want to get drunk. I want to go, you know, live the high life. Do the things that they talk about in all those Budweiser commercials. You know, I'm going to do that. So we'll will, we will stick our straw into the energy. This is our energy of life right here. This rep- red represents our energy. And just suck the energy out of our lives in chasing pleasure. But how many know that does not last very long? I mean, really, how long does it last? Some people try to stretch it into their 30s and 40s, and how many knows at some point people start looking at you and just doing the look? Like, he's still going after that stuff. When's he going to grow up? <laughs> right it's true so the second thing that we would chase and i believe this happens in our 20s and early 30s is romance pleasure to romance thank you my son i am your father he's serving the lord praise jesus okay so then we will set then we will spend a large part of our lives chasing romance, and I want to just illustrate this with the red straw. So purple straw, done. 20s and 30s, I want, to, I want to love somebody, because as the old prophet once said, you're nobody until somebody. Come on, join in. You're nobody until somebody. Okay, so I need somebody. I need some loving. They weren't the one. Let me try again. They broke up with me. How dare they? Or this. (laughs) I broke up with them. (laughs) Take that. And eventually we'll find someone. But eventually the romance deal wears off. We find someone, we get married, before you know it, you look back, and say, wow, I can't believe how much pressure I put myself under to find someone. My wife and I found each other very young in life at 24 and 25. We just celebrated on Monday 19 years of marriage. <clears throat> do, you know, do you know what we got each other for our anniversary? Nothing. <laughs> Pay attention, young people. At some point, it's just like, okay, 19 years, good for you good for you too. If my wife wants something, she says, can we do this? I say, yes. And if I want something, I say, can we do this? And she says, yes. That's how it works. We don't need a special day. Hallmark hates us. But we love each other and it's been good and bad. It's been beautiful and ugly at times, but God is faithful in our marriage. But we look back on those early years and we see some of our young people at this church struggling with their love life and we're just like, sometimes we just want to laugh. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> Guys, Get married. Like, just get married. Some of you are like, I'm waiting for the one, the one. Find A1. Change the the into an A. Not the one, but A1 with a pulse, who loves Jesus and has a job. Those three things pulse, Jesus, job. I'm looking for my PJJ. Come on, somebody. Get into a small group. If you're having a hard time meeting people, get into a small group, walk up to somebody who's reasonably attractive and say, Will you be my PJJ? <laughs> so we chase this during our 20s and early 30s, but how many know eventually it's over? Right? And this is the one though that we're really pressing on: our careers. And here's what you learn after living a certain amount of time. You will spend far more of your life trying to make something of yourself through your career and work than anything else. Way more than romance, way more than fun and pleasure. Work. And so we come to work in our 30s, and think about it. Because of longevity and the ability to live long lives today and healthy lives, if we're careful, we could spend our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even our 70s, trying to find in work what we may not have been able to find in romance or pleasure, value, significance, satisfaction, acclimation, uh, achievement, things that we chase. So we'll do this for five decades. Pardon me. And at the end of our lives, we'll find out that jobs and careers and advancement do not satisfy. Now, this is what Solomon is going to tell us. Just want to give you a little bit more perspective on this in case you don't believe me. MSN.com created this, this perspective of your life. If you live 75 years, if you live 75 years, how much... Of that time, will you spend on each activity? And they found out that you will spend 46 days of 75 years getting yourself ready in the morning. If you're a woman, that number jumps up to 136 days. And let's just say on behalf of all men, ladies, we are thankful for the time that you put into that. Very lovely ladies at Waters Church, can I get a good amen? That was a chance for you men to get lucky tonight, but so be it. We'll sp- Married men, married men only. We will spend one year of our 75 years deciding what to wear. Again, if you're a woman, that number jumps up to two years. Um, We will spend 27 days waiting for buses, trains, cabs, and Ubers. We will spend three years of our lives washing clothes. How depressing is that? We will spend two years in meetings. Four months will be spent laughing. Only four months. You know what's even sadder? Only uh, five months will be spent complaining. Four months laughing, five months complaining. Four years will be spent on the phone, four years will be spent eating, five years surfing the internet, seven years lying awake. Yikes. And now think about this 20s, 20 year olds, listen, out of 75 years, we will spend a whopping 27 days on romantic activity. 27 days. Now you think about all the songs on the radio and all the movies and all the rom-coms and all the ways in which we are sold on this idea that once we find the one, we will be happy forever. 27 days. So it is not as big as you think. You know, Americans in the West, we make so much of romance, and it's such a small part of our lives. It really is. I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to burst the bubble of all the people who think that they're going to find eternal bliss in the arms of another person. You're gonna work. You're gonna ch- you're gonna go job. You're gonna get have a job. You're gonna to have to have kids. You're gonna to have to make your ends meet. You have to pay mortgage bills and electric bills and all that kind of stuff. And it's very small. I'm just telling you. Then it says this: the top four time takers in your life, eight years of shopping, ten years of watching television. The top one is sleeping. You'll spend 26 years. Sleeping. So if you don't like your life, the good news is one third of it you will not be awake for. Hallelujah. <laughs> you won't even notice that it sucks, okay? The second one on the list 11 years will be spent at work. I'm asking you to lean in here today with Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4 5 and 6 and discover happiness and satisfaction, not In or through your work but in God who is over your work point number one work is good and from God let us not deride work and I want to correct something that some of you might assume about the Bible you think that work is part of the curse no it's not I know this because work comes before the curse work exists in the garden before sin comes into the world you were made to work. Men and women are made to work. I have no problem with women doing everything men do in our created order. Outside of the church, of course, but outside of the church in the creation of God's good earth, women and men can work, rule, subdue creation. It is equal partners in God's gift of life. Now, the thing about it is we have to understand that this is we are made for work. So I'm not deriding it. I don't want you to say, okay, good. Thank you, pastor. I'm quitting my job tomorrow. No. Let's get a perspective of work. So God put man in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, to work it and to keep it. And in Ecclesiastes 2.24, Solomon backs this up and he says there's nothing better than for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Work. This is from the hand of God. You should work. You should create something with your hands, look back on it and say, I did that. That's a good thing. That's a blessed thing. Point number two. Here's the problem. Work is cursed by sin. So the curse comes in Genesis three after Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and not to God. They follow the serpent and they are cursed because they broke fellowship with their father. They are disconnected and every human since then has been born disconnected from God. And when you are disconnected from God, you will make other things God that should not be God. So God says in the curse to Adam and Eve, and listen to this line, Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. Thorns. Somebody say thorns. Thorns and thistles it shall produce for you by the sweat of your face, by the sweat of your brow. In some translations. Right up here. By the sweat of your brow it shall you shall eat bread. In other words, work is not part of the curse Frustrating work is part of the curse. Okay, are you following me? So the reason why you have that person at work that you can't stand is because of sin. And and here's what we were intended to do: we were intended to use the creation for our good and for the flourishing of all humans to share and to work it together. So that everybody flourishes. But here's what sin does. Sin disconnects us from God and consequently disconnects us from each other. The first two brothers, one was envious and jealous of the other, and in his work, what God accepted and what God did not accept, and Cain kills Abel because of the differences of God's view of their work. And so it disconnects us from each other. And the reason why you're frustrated with the sales results, or the reason why you're frustrated with what you do for a living, is because we exploit each other, and treat each other shamefully in worship of the creation and the things that we can get out of exploiting one another. That's where slavery comes from. That's where employment unfairness comes from. That's where inequality comes from because instead of using creation to bless humans, we use humans to serve and worship creation. Are you following me? So we need to understand the biblical picture of work Work is not the curse, but the frustration of sin has entered into our employment, entered into our agendas at work, and it has caused this disharmony between us. And it leads to hazards, occupational hazards. And Solomon walks us through these in Ecclesiastes 4, 5, and 6. And he says something in the middle of 5 that is ultimately the most important. But before we get there, let's take a look at the hazards. Letter A because work is cursed by sin, letter A is the discontent hazard. In other words, I will in some ways perform my job out of discontent for where I am in relation to where others are. Okay, lean in here again. Because look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Very important. He says in verse 4 of chapter 4, Then I saw all the toil and discontent. I'm sorry, then... Then I saw all the toil and skill in a work come from a man's, what's the word, everybody? Envy Envy of his neighbor. And he says, this is vanity, a striving after the wind. There are people, underline if you would in that verse, skill and toil, because they're two different things he talks about. There are people who will choose a career path, a skill, based solely on, on what other people look like in that field. I want to be a lawyer. Well, do you feel like you should be a lawyer? No, but I see the nice life they get. That's envy. I want to be a doctor. Well, do you care about people? Actually, I can't stand people. But I want a country club membership. And I want to play golf a lot when I'm retired. I want to be a police officer. Well, do you like the law? Actually, I break the law constantly. All really right, listen. <laughs> Might not be your calling. My, my point is, is that be careful that you don't chase. And, and and this is especially true for our teens. Listen, lean in here, please. You're thinking about college? You're thinking about what you want to do with your life? Or maybe you don't have a clue. Okay, relax. And please, please, please Do not make that choice based on some promised life that somebody else has that you want. You might give your life to a career or an occupation that you weren't made for. And in 20 years, you're going to remember what I said today and say, why am I not happy? Because you chased career and you chased coin and you chased what other people could accomplish instead of understanding what God made you for. I remember when I was in my senior year of high school, And I had four friends, and they were all going to go into uh, the pharmaceutical career path. Because this was huge in 1994. And and the promise was, go take this program, and out of college you will make $60,000 a year. Now, I had received a call in my heart, in my life, to do what I'm doing now at the age of 13. I'm an outlier, okay? I'm strange. Don't compare yourself to me. It's not usual that people know at 13 what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. That was God's grace to me. But here's the deal. If I hadn't known, okay, that that's what God wanted me to do, I know without a doubt I would have followed my friends into pharmaceuticals. And today I would be the most miserable pharmacist in the world. Because that's not my calling. That's not what God created me for. And I would have chased the $60,000 a year. Now I went to Bible school. And I graduated after four years of Bible school. And by God's faithfulness, I got a job making $16,000 a year. (laughs) The six was there. (laughs) It was just in the wrong place. But God was faithful. And you know what? When you're passionate about something, money follows. I'm just telling you. Don't chase the money. Chase what you know you're called to do. The money will be there eventually. And You say, well, how was God faithful on $16,000 a year in 1998? I got another job. (laughs) That's what you do when you can't afford your life. You get a second job. All these people, all these young people whining about working two jobs. "Ah, ah, I have two jobs. So what? (laughs) Many of us have been there, done that, got the T-shirt. We got through it. You'll get through it too. Let life toughen you up, buttercup. Nobody's going to hand you $100,000 out of college. Get that thought out of your mind. you got to earn your stripes. Come on, can I get a good amen from somebody in the house? I'm just telling you, we are becoming a victim culture. Everybody's blaming everybody. Young are blaming the old. Old are blaming the young. Everybody's blaming everybody. Women are blaming men. Black people blaming white people. White people blaming black people. Everybody's blaming blah, 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 blah. Take responsibility for yourself and understand that you are a child of the Most High God. And if God be for you, no man can be against you. That's what I love about the gospel. The gospel rescues us out of a victim culture because I know I'm a victor in Jesus. Hallelujah, I'm preaching now. I hope you're ready to receive. And I'm sick too. By God's grace, I'm getting this out. Watch out the envy of other people. You'll chase a career you're not made for. Letter B, the dedication hazard. Now this is gonna sound counterintuitive, but it's true. That you can get so dedicated to your career you never make time for relationships. You never build a home. Anybody with a building license can build a house. But it takes work to build a home. And family, at the end of the day, is the second most important thing on God's radar for you. It really is. God, number one, family, number two. And here's what he says. This is a powerful verse in verses 1. Uh, 7 to 8. Solomon says, I saw vanity under the sun again. He says, one person who has no other, doing it alone, no son, no brother, yet there was no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and an unhappy business. I don't know if you remember the movie The Family Man, starring Nicolas Cage. If you haven't seen it, Watch it tonight, and I will ruin it now, because i got to tell you the illustration. He's a New York playboy. He's driving a fast car, sleeping with fast women, and he gets a glimpse of what life would have looked like if he did not break up with his college sweetheart, but married her. And he suddenly wakes up. He he goes to sleep with a supermodel and a super fast car, and he wakes up the next morning with dirty diapers and a wife. And he's just frustrated for the first half of the movie, thinking his life is over. All he wants to do is get back his life. But eventually, he realizes true joy is in having those kids and having that wife and the friends. And it's a little illustration. And and then he wakes up from that glimpse, and he goes after the woman that he broke up with. And uh, we're just left with the impression that you can serve your career. You can serve your status in your career. You can serve the respect of your peers. You can serve the lifestyle that you see other people in that career having. And you can find yourself empty and alone. And Solomon is saying, I have been there. I have done that. Learn from me. Don't be so dedicated that you don't make time for friends and family. Some of you Men and I think actually now, I actually say I have to say this more to the women in this culture now. You're buying you're drinking the Kool-Aid of this culture that says you gotta produce and you gotta have a job and you've gotta have a career because you've got to prove that you are equal to men. This is the mantras that you're getting 24 hours a day. And I want to say, listen, in the eyes of God, you are of equal value and worth. And yes, you can do a lot of things, but don't let that get into your heart. To the point that you abdicate all the other riches of the blessings of God that you could have in your life for the sake of your career. Now you say, Well, why don't you say that to the men? Because we've been saying that to the men for so long, they actually listen to us. And now it's women doing more work than men. And we need to start speaking to the women and say, Listen, don't chase your career at the expense of the things that matter. Oh, it's quiet in here. Do you know what that means? I'm getting you right here. Praise Jesus. Somebody say a soft amen. Amen. Letter C, the difference maker hazard. The difference maker hazard is this idea that gets into our spirits of, well, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to climb the ladder. I'm going to get the presidency. I'm going to get the CEO. I'm going to get the boss uh, position. And I'm going to change the world. Okay, that's fine. And especially in careers like mine and health and human services people, And nurses and doctors and all those people, watch out for this hazard. It's a hazard. Because here's what Solomon says in verse 13 of chapter 4. It is better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed. He might even become king. Now think about that. He could become the top dog in the world, even though he'd been in prison. But, and this is a big but, verse 15. But then everyone rushes to the side of yet another youth who replaces him. And this crowd stand around that youth. But, and another but. Then another generation grows up and rejects him too. So it is all meaningless like chasing the wind. Okay, I'm going to make a difference. Okay, but if God is not in the mix, you're going to be replaced and forgotten quickly. Quickly. I got got, like a news flash for all of you today here at Waters Church. Someday, someone will replace me. I know that's hard to imagine. Because I'm the best pastor you've ever seen. I understand. I'm replaceable. I'm replaceable. And the person who replaces me, they're replaceable too. And the person that replaces them, replaceable. What Solomon is saying is, don't chase this idea that you're going to leave this lasting legacy in the world because you could do that and it's really just a little blip in human history. He talked about who was the president 200 years ago. Nobody knew. I don't even remember, and I told you the answer two weeks ago. It's not even worth remembering. And I'm I'm just trying to tell you, and Solomon's trying to tell you, this is a hazard because you'll sacrifice the things that matter, and you'll sacrifice a relationship with God to try to make a difference in the world. And without God, life is empty. How many remember a guy by the name of William Hung? We'll put him up on the screen here. Yeah, now you remember. She banged! She banged! I go crazy when she moo, move. she moved. Got on American Idol, season three, auditioned. He sang it basically the same way I just sang it right there. And Simon Cowell said, you can't sing, you can't dance, so what do you want me to say? He said, well, I tried my best. And Paul Abdul was like, oh, beautiful, wonderful. Well, he took off. He became this phenomenon <clears throat> for some reason. A guy who couldn't sing. He actually got a record deal. Produced three records. Sold over 150,000 copies of three records. A guy who could not sing. He appeared in three movies. He went on 16 talk shows. This guy swept the earth 15 minutes. I mean, if you want to talk about sucking the life out of 15 minutes of fame, William Hung (laughs) did it better than anybody else. And yet, it was a blip. I only use him as an illustration to say, in the scope of eternity, no matter how high you climb on the corporate ladder or the professional ladder or the finances ladder, your 15 minutes. And it really is true. Without God, it ends. Letter D. The dissatisfaction hazard. The dissatisfaction hazard is that no matter how much you get, it's never enough. Life without God. So he says this in verse 10 of chapter 5: He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will not be satisfied with his income. There is this is a vanity. You said some of you are under the impression, I will make six figures and then I will be happy. No, you will want six figures and more. They did a research study of Americans. They asked people making $40,000 a year, how much is rich? They said $60,000 a year. They asked the $60,000 a year people, how much is rich? $75,000 a year. They asked the $75,000 a year people, how much is rich? They said $100,000 a year. They asked $100,000, they said $200,000. On, on Guess what? They asked people making a $1,000,000 a year, how much is rich? They said making $2,000,000 a year. At some point, someone's rich. Like, seriously. The point being, in our hearts, no matter how much we get, no matter how much we earn, it is never satisfying. We need something more. And so he says this in verse 6, verse 7 of chapter 6. He says, the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. It's never enough. It's just never enough. Letter E, the disaster hazard. And the disaster hazard is is simple. Uh, you could experience disaster at work, and and here's the thing: lean in here, professionals, with me, real close. Be careful about defining your existence by what you do, because time and chance, man, the economy could drop, the housing bubble could burst. It's bursted before to burst again. Your your career could be taken over by automiza- automa- autom- automation. Automation. There we go. What is his name? What's his name? Yang is running around the country talking about this. Automation. Could take your job out tomorrow. On top of that, cancer, death, sickness, illness, a car accident. My daughter and I were at Liberty University last week, and we saw Paula Ferris, she was on GMA and the View at the same time. Her career. She's a Christian. She made it to the top of her career. And she said that she realized that what she had chased, that career, that position, that she chased to have, she woke up one day and realized that it had her. It consumed her. And she thought about quitting, but she resisted. She felt God saying, you're going to quit this stuff. You're going to kill yourself. She resisted. And then a horrible, debilitating sickness and a massive car accident. She woke up, and she obeyed. And she quit. She says she's never been happier she put God back in first place of her life. Watch out, because it's never enough, and disaster could come to all of us. 5.14 of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's a son to a father, but he has nothing in his hand. Ecclesiastes 6.2, A man, God God gives wealth, possessions, honor. He lacks nothing, but he doesn't give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys. It's vanity. It's a grievous evil. Again, when career and work is God it'll destroy you. And and here's another thing you know I just thought, I just thought about it for myself like you'll have bad days at your job. And if you're not careful you'll think, "Well, I stink at this." And then you'll have bad months. And what happens when bad months becomes bad years? And you're not getting the sales numbers and you're not getting the record that you need and you're not getting the results and your boss starts to press in on you and you're starting to think, "Wow, I guess I'm really worthless." No, you've just put your worth and value in your vocation, instead of the God who loves you and cares for you and sent Jesus to die for you. Watch out for this. It is not the definition of who you are. As much as we think it is. And I'll tell you, we all know that it is because when we meet somebody new, what's the first two questions we ask them? What's your name? And what do you do? We live in a culture like this. What I do defines me. And if you define yourself by what you do, you would chase things that you should not chase and you'll come up empty. That's what Solomon says. So number three, point number three, we need an answer for the hazards of work. We need an answer. So what's the answer? Well, Solomon makes two suggestions, and then God speaks. Right in the middle of Ecclesiastes 4, 5, and 6. Suggestion number one from Solomon is this. Contentment. He says, better is one handful of quietness. Than two handfuls of of toil and striving at the moment. Some of you, that's where you are. You got two handfuls. You got your hands and everything. You're trying to grab everything that you possibly can, squeeze every nickel out of every business deal. You're trying to make sure that you get all that you can. But your heart isn't healthy. Your stress levels are crazy. You're spending all kinds of time that you should be sleeping and resting, working overtime to try to get ahead of your neighbor or to try to prove to somebody that you're worth something because you accomplished so much. I think about how many children are trying to out-shout the disapproval of their parents through their work and through their toil. I'll prove to you, Mom, that I'm worth something. I'll prove to you, Dad, that I'm worth loving. And you'll give your whole heart to your career. And your heart will suffer. As Rick Warren likes to say, we spend the first 50 years of our lives Sacrificing our health to get wealth. And then we sacrifice the rest of our lives, sacrificing our wealth to try to hold on to our health. It's an endless game. Lean in and listen. Contentment. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.6, he says, Godliness with contentment. What's contentment? When you stop, you turn around, and you look at all the things God's given you, and you start to say thank you. And and I I mean is, listen, you have to say thank you. This is what the Bible calls praise and worship. I don't like to worship. I don't like to praise. Yes, you do. You just worship the wrong things. Why don't you praise and worship baseball, stars of sports? Why don't you praise and worship a money deal or whatever? I'm trying to say, worship the right thing and be thankful for what God has put in your life. And when you look back and you say, thank you for my children, they're healthy. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my house it's still standing. Thank you for that bed. Thank you for that pillow. Thank you for the clothes on my back. Thank you for the car I get to drive. Thank you for the things that you put in my life. And I'll tell you, you will turn your spirit around in a moment. I hope I'm not too fired up for you, but it's true. Suggestion number two is companionship. So Solomon says you got to have people in your life. Don't chase career at the cost of friends. Two are better than one. They have a good reward for their work. If one falls down, he'll go on. He'll say, "If one falls down, the other one can pick him up." Hard to stay warm at night alone, but if you got another body with you, you can stay warm. And then he says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I thought about that word. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Listen to me very carefully. At the end of your life, invest your relationship capacities, your friendship capacities, listen, in no more than three people. Trust me. You're going to get to the end of your life. You're going to meet a lot of people. You're going to have some casual friends, some acquaintances, some, some seasonal friends. And you're going to look back at the end of your life, and you're going to say, three. I got my three. See where is that in the Bible? Jesus had his three. Peter, James, and John. And if you look throughout the Bible, there's a lot of places where this happens. David had his three mighty men who were over the 30 and so you've got to have some friends, but you've got to take time to develop relationships. And maybe not making the dollar, but making the friend will become better for you in the end. So those are Solomon's suggestions, but here's God's answer. And here's the answer letter or number three come to me. Come to me. You're chasing career. You're chasing vocation. You're trying to find validation in your vocation, your worth in your net worth, your, your uh, uh, affirmation in your achievement. God says, lay it down and come to me. Ecclesiastes 5.11, in the middle of this big, long diatribe, three-chapter diatribe of work, money, and toil, Solomon breaks to say, guard your steps when you enter the house of God. Now, if you've got your notes out, underline guard. In other words, go to church, but don't just go to church. Consider how you go. Don't just walk into church and carry into church all the things that you want God to do in your career. Because that's how we will taint our experience with God. We'll come to God and we'll say, I need this much money. I need this job. I need this position. And here's what Solomon says. Guard the way that you approach God. Here's letter A. Listen first. Speak second. Listen first and speak second. And, and this is very important for some of you. Because you got to come to God to hear what He has to say. Why, pastor? Because God has something to say better than you. So he says in verse uh, 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, draw near to listen, that's better than offering the sacrifice of fools. They do not know what they're doing is evil. Be, do not be rash with your mouth. Let your words be few. Do not be hasty in your heart. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be, what, few. There was a pastor in rural Pennsylvania in the 1950s. His name was David. And every night before he went to bed, he watched The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And one day God said to him, I want you to turn that off and listen to me. And so he sold the TV. He didn't just turn it off. He sold the TV and decided to listen to God's voice when he, re- when he was previously listening to Johnny Carson. And one day when he was praying, he saw on, Life, on, on the cover of Life magazine on his coffee table a picture of some gang members in New York City. And he heard God say, go to New York City, move there, and help those young men. And he did. And he moved to New York City, and he tried to help them, and he failed, and he succeeded, and he failed. And finally he started a movement that is still alive in this country today. His name was David Wilkerson. He started Teen Challenge. Teen Challenge has rescued millions of people from drugs and alcohol across the earth. It's in 100 countries today, 1100 1100 centers. Why? Because David Wilkerson at one point said, God, I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to let you speak. What could God do through you? Listen first. And I'm not saying you have to start some huge movement, but listen what God has to say about your job and your career. Letter B, receive first, give second. I think some of you need to hear this. You think God just wants to take. Nope, God wants to give. Why would the God who already owns everything need to take anything from you? So this is why Solomon says, when you vow a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, in verse 4. God doesn't take pleasure in that. He says, pay me what you vow. And then in verse 5, it's better that you don't vow. (laughs) And what what Psalm is saying is, some of you come to church and you say, and maybe this was your deal today. God, I'm going to go to church for the next six weeks, if you will. So you're bargaining with God. God, I'm going to straighten up my life, if you will. And we do this consciously, and sometimes we do this subconsciously. And we start to think God owes us. God doesn't owe us, but God wants to give us. And nothing that we give to him, he does not already own. Understand that God is good. He's a giver. Receive. Receive what he has for you. Letters see, and finally, Jesus first, rest at last. Jesus first, rest at last. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus speaks to all the busy bees. All the people thinking that if I just climb the ladder, if I just get the position, if I just get the salary, I'll finally be at rest. And Jesus says, no, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you, listen, what does he say? What does he say? And you will find rest say the last four words everybody rest for your souls come to Jesus I started this message by talking about the fact that work is cursed now pay attention here real quick I'm almost done what was that curse God said to Adam and Eve thorns and thistles the ground will produce for you and by the sweat of your brow you will eat bread That's what we've been dealing with. But 2,000 years ago, the Son of God became flesh. And he went to the cross. And before he got to the cross, they put a crown of thorns on his sweaty brow. As a symbol to say, what Adam and Eve put you through, I'm bringing you out of. What Adam and Eve subjected you to, I'm saving you from. And if you'll put your hope in me, and you'll put your life in my hands, I'll empower you to succeed. I'll empower you to rest. I'll empower you to do what I want you to do. And your work will not have to be the final definition of your life. And you'll cross from this life into the next life hearing my voice say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of heaven. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why those crowns were on his thorns so that they don't have to be on yours. And you're going to be at rest in him. The last thing I want you to write down, sermon in a sentence. If anybody asks you, what was the sermon about today? This is it. When we rest in the finished work of Jesus, our work does not define us. And we are free to accomplish what God assigns us. I love my job. I love what I do. But someday, I'm no longer going to be able to do this job. I just need to do what God wants me to do and say at the end of the day, God, it's all yours. I'm yours. My voice is yours. These people are yours. I just want to do what you want me to do and die happy and be with you. This is the promise of the gospel for each and every one of us.